Well, uh, speaking of the lost people of the world, Nebuchadnezzar was one of those lost people in the world. He's a, he's, he's a pagan who worshipped uh, the, the, the god Marduk and the other Babylonian gods, and he's, he's looking for peace. Uh, he can't find peace, uh, and he's troubled by this recurring dream uh, that he keeps having over and over again. And Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll remember where we left off last time, uh, he had ordered all of his wise men killed because they could not tell him the dream and the interpretation. And so Daniel and his friends, they were among those included in uh, his wise men. So they, their heads were on the chopping block. They were about to be killed. And so Daniel is under this death sentence. Uh, and as we learned last time when we met, uh, Daniel had the proper response to God when you feel uh, like you are in desperate need of prayer. And that was that Daniel uh, and his friends, they acknowledged their great need, right? There was no way that they could understand the king's dream, let alone interpret it, unless there was some kind of divine intervention. So Daniel prayed for divine intervention. Uh, he asked God to give him the dream and the interpretation. And so God did. And when God did, uh, Daniel thanked God. So we thank God when he answers our prayers. And then uh, Daniel proclaimed uh, to Nebuchadnezzar that he would tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and his interpretation. And so this is what we do. We said that last time that this was a model that we could follow. Uh, we acknowledge our need. Uh, we pray to God. We thank God when he answers. And then we proclaim God's glory when he does. And we put up an acronym, APTP, Acknowledge, Pray, Thank, Proclaim, uh, as a model that we can follow when we are desperate for God's intervention. So when we left off last time, Daniel uh, told Nebuchadnezzar that though no man on earth could do this, could, could tell the dream and interpret it, well, there is a God in heaven who can. And so uh, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar his dream concerns the future, what's going to happen in the future. And so with Nebuchadnezzar, you can imagine, on the edge of his seat, waiting for the dream and the interpretation, uh, Daniel gave him just that. So let's talk about the dream first. This is verses 31 to 35. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So <clears throat> here's a rendering of what the statue may have looked like. Uh, Daniel said that the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was enormous. Uh, it was so large and imposing that it scared Nebuchadnezzar, and that's why he's in bed lying awake uh, in fear of what this dream might mean. Now, uh, you know what that's like, right? When, when you have a nightmare, uh, you don't want to go back to sleep again because you're afraid that you're going to fall right back into the same nightmare, right? That never happens in good dreams, does it? That only happens in bad dreams. Uh, so uh, I wish it would happen in good dreams, but it doesn't. 
But so uh, Daniel describes the, these various parts of the statue to Nebuchadnezzar that he saw in his dream. So the head is pure gold, the arms are of silver, uh, the belly, uh, uh, the chest are, is, uh, and thighs are of bronze, its legs are of iron, and then the, the, the toes are partly iron and partly uh, baked clay. So uh, just two things I want to mention about uh, the metals of this statue. And the first one is that we ought to notice that the, the, the value of the metals decreases as we go from top to bottom, right? Gold, silver, bronze, and then iron. But also, these metals get stronger as you go from top to bottom. So gold is the weakest of the metals, silver, bronze, and then iron is the strongest metal. Uh, that doesn't account for the toes, which we'll, we'll get to uh, in a little while. Uh, but we'll talk about that when we get to the interpretation of the dream. But Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue in his dream, and then uh, he saw this stone come in uh, and destroying it, blowing the whole thing away. And the stone then becomes a great mountain uh, that fills the whole earth. Well, so far, so good for Daniel, right? He's gotten the dream, but now what does it mean? That's what Nebuchadnezzar really wants to know. I'm sure he was amazed uh, that Daniel had gotten this far, so I'm sure he had confidence that Daniel could interpret it for him now. So he's going to interpret it, talking about four separate kingdoms that are coming, uh, his kingdom plus three more. And so he's starting with Babylon in verses 36 through 38. The head of gold represents Babylon, the first kingdom. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of man dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So Daniel uh, said that the parts of the statue, they represent various Gentile kingdoms uh, that would come and go uh, before being replaced by the divine kingdom. Now, the head of gold was Babylon. So let's look at this on the statue. That's Babylon, the head of gold. Uh, that's the most valuable metal. So humanly speaking, a Babylon's king uh, and the kingdom of Babylon, uh, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings. That means he, he ruled over the entire world, uh, the first true world ruler uh, that the world has ever known. And so it's interesting that, that Daniel uses a title for Nebuchadnezzar here, king of kings, that is used later of Jesus, right? In the book of Revelation, particularly, Jesus is called king of kings. So uh, while Nebuchadnezzar reigned, he was the king of kings, but uh, there will one day be Jesus, the king of kings, the true king of kings. Uh, when he returns, he will reign as such. Uh, but Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar uh, that, that uh, he's the king of kings, at least over this earthly kingdom. And Daniel also told him that, that God had sovereignly given him this kingdom. And last time, you'll remember, we talked about how important it is to proclaim the truth uh, that God has given us. So uh, just imagine for a second how courageous Daniel had to be uh, to go forward and, and, and extol the, the virtues and the wonders and the beauties of God. You know, Des uh, or, uh, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't come to Daniel to hear about Daniel's God, right, and the beauty of Daniel's God. He came to hear about the dream and the interpretation. So for Daniel to take the time to talk about God's sovereignty and wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar is like, give me the dream, you're under a death sentence here, I'm about to chop your head off, right? Uh, so Daniel took the time to proclaim the dream and the interpretation. Uh, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, God is sovereign. God has made you king. He has given you the birds of the air and the men of the, and the beasts of the field. 
And so this is all consistent with what uh, Daniel said in verse 21 when he said God sets up kingdoms and he deposes them. And so this is what God is say, uh, Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he has established Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. And his kingdom is represented by gold because his kingdom really was uh, the gold standard because he was an absolute monarch. He tolerated no threats from any outsiders. He didn't share his rule with anyone else. Uh, his kingdom was his own. But the kingdom of Babylon would not last forever. In fact, it lasted only 66 years from 60, 605 B.C., to 539 BC uh, when Medo-Persia came on the scene. So next Daniel talked about the kingdoms that would succeed uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And he talks about the next two in verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. All right, so back to the slide again. Daniel mentions two kingdoms here. Uh, the first one, uh, and just by the way, he gives surprisingly little, little ink to these, right? One verse to mention two kingdoms that will rule uh, and cover the next 500 years or so. Uh, so he's talking about Medo-Persia and Greece. And you may read verse 39 and say, well, how do you know that's Medo-Persia and Greece? Well, we know because later in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, he talk, talks much more about Medo-Persia and Greece uh, in great detail. And he actually mentions Medo-Persia and Greece by name in chapter 8. So, so we know that's who he's talking about here. Now, Persia's empire lasted much longer than the Babylonian empire. It lasted over 200 years from 539 to 331 B.C., and it covered much more territory than the Babylonian kingdom ever did. But from Daniel's perspective, uh, it was inferior. And we'll see why when we get to Daniel chapter 6. But just uh, quickly, do you remember when King Darius uh, made a law that says that anybody who worships a god other than me for 30 days, may he be thrown into the lion's den? So the satraps who were against Daniel tricked Daniel, or tricked uh, Darius, Daniel just continued on praying like he always did, uh, and they reported Daniel's prayer to the king. Well, the king had no choice. He had to throw Daniel into the lion's den, and he wanted to rescue him, but he was powerless to change the law that he had, had already been enacted. So that shows the inferiority of his kingdom. He did not have the power to annul a law that he had already made. And so that's the difference in, in the inferiority of his kingdom. It restricted his absolute authority. And so that's why his kingdom was inferior. So that's that kingdom. It lasted 200 years. And then following that uh, is Greece. Uh, Greece conquered the world in 331 BC under Alexander the Great. And the Greek empire lasted even longer than the Medo-Persian empire, 300 years uh, until Rome conquered it. And its territory was even larger than anything that Medo-Persia ever had. Uh, but after Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, now that's less than 10 years after they conquered the world, uh, the empire split into four different divisions. And, and uh, one of, of uh, Alexander the Great's generals uh, took over each one of those four kingdoms. And that division caused weakness. So it was never quite as strong as the empires that preceded it. Uh, so bronze is, is uh, stronger, but it's less valuable than silver, and that's why it's a decreasing value of metal. So Daniel uh, foresaw that, that this Greek empire, though large, was even less impressive than the empires that went before it. 
And now the last kingdom that is spoken about here by Daniel in this dream uh, is represented by the iron legs of Rome. So let's look at verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So Rome defeated the last remnant of the Greek Empire in 31 BC. But later, Rome split into two separate uh, divisions of the empire, the east and the west, and that's depicted by the two legs of uh, the statue. So Rome is, is the strongest metal, uh, it's iron, uh, and it crushed all challengers for hundreds and hundreds of years. But even Rome didn't last forever. We know from history that Rome uh, ruled over a vast territory, greater than all the kingdoms that preceded it, uh, yet still uh, Rome never succeeded in uniting all of its people into one cohesive unit. So that's the, the uh, legs, and we're going to come back in a few minutes and talk about these toes. But before we move on, I just want you to notice here that when he talks about the toes of clay mixed with iron, he doesn't call that a fifth kingdom. He sees this as a continuation of the fourth kingdom. And that's going to be important when we come into further interpretation uh, in a couple minutes. But for now, I just want us to uh, move forward and look at the divine kingdom uh, that Daniel talks about next. And that's verses 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. All right, so let's just notice a few things about this stone that is coming, uh, and it's about the kingdom that God will establish. The first thing is that it's divine, right? This is a kingdom that God is going to set up. Secondly, it's eternal. It will never be destroyed. It will never be left to another people. There is no succeeder after this kingdom. This is the last kingdom. Third, it will be the most powerful. It will crush the human government that's in place at the time, and it will never be overthrown. Another thing is that it's symbolized by a stone. Now, in Scripture, a stone or a rock is often used to symbolize Jesus Christ. Uh, particularly, we see in Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Uh, so the stone represents Jesus Christ. And finally, this stone completely obliterates the statue. Uh, it blows it away like chaff. Well, how do we interpret this stone? 
That's really the big question. Uh, interpreters, commentators have, have had many discussions about how this stone ought to be interpreted. And here's where it gets a little complicated. If it hasn't been complicated already, it's about to get more complicated. So almost all Christian theologians believe that Jesus Christ is the stone uh, and the kingdom of God that he brings. But the issue of interpreting the stone is the timing of it, the timing of the stone. So the, the crux of the debate is, uh, is the stone Jesus Christ uh, who became a man, uh, who lived, who died, who was buried, who was resurrected, his first coming, or is the stone representative of Jesus' second coming when he will come again uh, to deal with his enemies? That's what the debate about. Is it about his first coming or is it about his second coming? Which does the stone represent? Well, the study of prophecy often goes hand in hand with uh, a fancy Greek word called eschatology. Eschatos means last. Uh, and so eschatology is just a fancy word that means last things or end times. That's what uh, eschatology is. And so Christians, uh, now brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, people who will most certainly all be together in heaven one day, uh, disagree about the timing of these events. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, this is not a salvation issue. This is, a, this is just a debate among Christians. So as I present this debate over whether uh, the stone is the first coming or the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, I just want us to stress that this is a debate among Christians, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not an us versus them issue. Uh, this is us debating with us over a non-essential of the Christian faith. The timing of when Jesus is coming again is not as important as the fact that Jesus is coming again, right? That's what this is all about. So with that said, there are some Christians who hold to a system of eschatology called amillennialism. Amillennialism. The word means no millennium. Uh, but that's not quite an accurate statement of what amillennialism actually means. It's not an accurate statement of their view on end times. An amillennialist does not believe in a literal 1,000-year kingdom uh, that Jesus will reign on on the earth after the second coming. They believe that we are living in a spiritual, figurative millennial kingdom right now. So when John talks about a thousand-year kingdom in Revelation, that refers to the church age, not a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth uh, that uh, Revelation talks about. And because amillennialists don't believe in a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth, uh, they think that the stone, the smiting stone, talked about in verses 34 and 35, refers to Jesus' first coming. Uh, and that the stone that fills the whole earth is the spiritual kingdom that uh, Jesus inaugurated when he came that we are now living in. Uh, so that's what an amillennialist believes. Now there are others, and I profess to be in this camp, uh, we hold to a system of eschatology called premillennialism. And we're called premillennial because we believe that Jesus is going to come again before he sets up his literal 1,000-year kingdom on this earth. So a premillennialist believes that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is called the rapture of the church, where Jesus comes uh, to take his church to heaven, comes in the air to do that, uh, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other passages. 
Uh, the rapture will then be followed by the tribulation. That's a seven-year period uh, during which uh, God will test those who remain after the believers in Christ have been raptured. He'll complete his discipline of Israel, and he will offer the unbelieving world one final chance to believe in him before his second coming. Uh, premillennialists believe that the, the seven seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments of Revelation 6 through 19 occur during this seven-year tribulation period. Uh, so simply put, uh, we believe that Christ will come for the church in the rapture and then come with his church at the second coming. Uh, but so because they, uh, premillennialists believe in a, a, uh, a second coming that is uh, going to be followed or that, that will come after I'm sorry, because they believe that there is a thousand-year literal kingdom, uh, they believe that the smiting stone uh, refers to Jesus' second coming. They think that uh, his, the, the stone that came was not fulfilled in history. It's still yet to be fulfilled at some future point in time when Christ comes again with the church. Now, to be fair to both sides, there is no way that I can possibly do justice to this entire debate in one sermon. It's impossible to be done. Uh, but I can try to tell you briefly how each side fits Daniel chapter 2 into their own system of eschatology. Now, I would encourage you to do your own research on this, to study this for yourself. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, for me, I use the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, by John Walvoord and Roy Zuck. Uh, I looked at a commentary uh, on Daniel by Stephen Miller from the New American Commentary series. Uh, John Wolvert also has a detailed commentary specifically about Daniel uh, that I looked at. Uh, those guys are all premillennialists, but I think they present the amillennialist side uh, fairly. Uh, I also used H.C. Uh, uh, Leupold, who's a well-known amillennialist, to get their point of view on this. Uh, so try to get as well-rounded a, 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 of the arguments as I could on both sides. But remember, amillennials, premillennials, whatever you call yourself, the stone is Jesus. That's the most important part. Now, amillennialists, they hold that Jesus was the smiting stone when he came the first time. And let me give you a couple of arguments for why they believe that that's true. Uh, in verse 35, it says that the stone that struck the statue became a mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, amillennialists argue that when Christ came, Christianity began to grow and spread geographically over the earth, and it is still doing so. And so the church is the mountain that is filling the whole earth. Secondly, Jesus came during Rome's rule, and though he didn't destroy Rome, uh, he did break the power of pagan Rome, eventually causing it to uh, disband into ten different kingdoms, which are represented by the ten toes. So that's a second argument. And then their third argument is that uh, Christ said he was the chief cornerstone on which some would stumble and on others he would fall. And so that's the smiting stone according to amillennialists. And so for these reasons, amillennialists argue that uh, Daniel chapter 2 is fulfilled, uh, being fulfilled now figuratively in this spiritual kingdom uh, uh, as the church continues to grow. Uh, and there will not be a literal fulfillment in an earthly kingdom later. Now, premillennialists, premillennialists have an opposite view. They argue that the, uh, the kingdom predicted in Daniel chapter 2 will begin when Christ returns uh, to destroy his enemies and rule on this earth for 1,000 years. And this will happen immediately following his second coming. So let me give you some reasons for why premillennialists uh, think the smiting stone refers to Jesus' second coming and not his first. 
the stone uh, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verse 35 becomes a mountain suddenly in the dream, not gradually. Uh, so Christianity, as we know it today, did not suddenly fill the whole earth at Jesus' first coming, right? And 2,000 years later, it still has not filled the whole earth, right? We look around ourselves right now, and, and we surely know that Christianity has not filled the whole earth. Uh, but when Christ returns, a uh, premillennialist believes that it will fill the whole earth suddenly, not gradually. Secondly, uh, though Christ came in the days of the Roman Empire, he did not destroy it. The Roman Empire uh, continued on uh, in the West for 500 years and in the East for 1,500 years. Uh, so he did not destroy the Roman Empire, even though he came during it. A third, during Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire never had 10 kings uh, at one time. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar's statue suggests that there will be 10 kings reigning simultaneously at one time whom Christ will destroy. And so if that's true, then these 10 toes somehow represent 10 separate kings uh, that will be ruling at the time. And these uh, toes of iron mixed with clay are then yet future, uh, but not ancient Rome. So this iron and clay somehow represents progressive weakness and deterioration of the Roman Empire. And we know that two metals, when you form two metals together, uh, they make a strong alloy sometimes, and it makes them stronger than either of the two would be individually. But iron does not mix with clay, right? We know that. It may stick to clay, but it doesn't blend with it. It won't bond with it. And so uh, many commentators have noted that although uh, Rome was defeated as an empire, its legacy continues on even to this day, right, in language and culture. Even today, uh, the effects of Rome continue on. And that's why I noted that the Ten Toes are not a separate kingdom. They are somehow a continuation of the, the original Roman Empire, some reconstituted form of the Roman Empire uh, that Christ will defeat in the future. So Rome never had these ten kings at once that are, are talked about here uh, in this passage. And then lastly, Christ is the stumbling stone. Uh, he is the chief cornerstone, uh, and some will stumble over him, and some he will fall on. But he is not yet the smiting stone that Scripture talks about often uh, to talk about when Jesus comes in judgment to destroy his enemies. So, for example, Psalm 2 says, Jesus will uh, break his enemies like a rod of iron, and he will scatter them, shatter them like earthenware. Uh, so this hasn't happened yet. So when he comes again, uh, he will destroy his enemies. So that's the premillennialist argument. Now, much, much more could be said about both of these arguments. Uh, but for the reasons I've laid out here, I hold to the premillennial view. Uh, if you want to ask anybody about the amillennial view, uh, we have a good friend in the crowd who would be hands happy to answer your questions. Our buddy Grumps loves to, to argue about these things and chat these things out. So uh, I invite you to do that. So much more could be said about these uh, two uh, different positions, but uh, uh, we'll talk about it more as we get deeper into to Daniel. But I just want to say to you, like, if this is an academic discussion to you uh, that either puts you to sleep, as I can see that, that it has for some of you, uh, <laughs> or just doesn't matter too much to you, you know, that's okay. Uh, because, like I said, this is not a salvation issue. Some people call themselves pan-millennials, right? They don't worry about this because it will all pan out in the end. And that's when they will find out how it turns out. Uh, all we really need to know is that Jesus wins in the end. And because we have allied ourselves with Jesus, we win in the end too. But 
Since we know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, I believe that we should, as Christians, do the best we can to understand scripture, uh, what it teaches. And so we want to come to prophecy humbly, uh, with a teachable attitude, recognizing that if there weren't good arguments on both sides, there would be nothing to debate, right? So each side can make a solid debate about why they hold to their position. Uh, so let's not look down on the other side of the debate thinking that we have all the answers. We don't, okay? None of us do. Uh, all right, that's all I want to say about uh, prophecy for now. We'll certainly have a lot more time to get into it beginning in, in Daniel chapter 7 again. But for now, uh, let's see what happens to Daniel as a result of him being able to interpret the king's dream. Verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Now, some critics chastised Daniel for having uh, received praise and offerings from Nebuchadnezzar, but, but I think that, that Daniel wasn't accepting Nebuchadnezzar's praise for himself, uh, but as God's representative. We know Daniel far too well from, from this book to, to accuse him of stealing, with God, uh, stealing God's glory. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't go as far here as proclaiming Daniel's God as the one true God, right? He didn't get that far. But he does honor Daniel's God. And God is not done with Nebuchadnezzar, right? We're going to see in chapters 3 and chapter 4 uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has a humbling coming to him. And he's going to get it. Uh, and so we'll see how, how God works on Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but uh, Daniel, for, for his part, uh, he gets this wonderful promotion. Uh, he's made uh, the, the ruler over this uh, whole province of Babylon. And when he is, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, don't forget my three friends, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar promoted those three too and made them administrators over the whole province. Now, how about this for a rise to power, right? This is reminiscent of Joseph, who goes from prisoner to prime minister, right? Who God put in place uh, just to deal with the famine that he knew was coming. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in Daniel chapter 2, because you'll recall Daniel came with the first wave of exiles in 605 BC. There are two more waves of exiles coming from Jerusalem to Babylon. That'll happen in 597 and 586 BC. And so here's God putting Daniel in place uh, so that he is the ruler of this province when these next waves of exile come. Coincidence? I don't think so, right? God is sovereign over his creation. Uh, so let's close with a few applications now. And the first one is this, as I just said, God is sovereign over his creation. You know, God is just involved at the macro level of everything that happens in the world, right? He knows the beginning from the end. He sets up all of the empires and deposes them. We see that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And here he spoke to one pagan king and he gave him the entire blueprint for what's going to happen in the next 2,600 years and counting as we wait for Jesus' return. 
So nothing happens outside of God's plan, and we can trust God to govern the universe. You look around and say, what's going on, Lord? Well, we may not know, but he knows. Second, I want us to see that God is personal. God gave the dream to just one man and gave the interpretation to just one man. So God is involved in the micro level of our puny little lives too. And isn't it amazing that the God who created and controls everything cared enough about Nebuchadnezzar to relieve his anxiety by giving him the dream and then delivering Daniel to him for the interpretation. And not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but think of all the wise men who would have been killed had God not done that. So Daniel and his friends and all the other wise men of the kingdom were saved. And how about you and I? Uh, So that we might read this and we might have confidence in the scriptures and confidence in God that he is able uh, to do what he promises. He loves you and me, in fact, so much that he gave his only son so that you and I could have eternal life. So God is personal. And the last thing is that while the timing of the prophetic events may be debatable, Christ's second coming is not. So if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead and that he's coming again and that he promised to conquer his enemies, to reward believers and to restore the world. And that's the big picture, right? We may disagree about the timing of this and that, uh, but our hope, the, the, the thing that makes us Christian is our faith in the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. So study scripture, please, by all means. Form an opinion, do your research, but let's not lose the central message of the gospel as we're thinking about uh, the the prophecy that we're studying in Daniel. Uh, Praise God for his glorious plan of salvation, that Jesus is coming again, and that our place in heaven is secure. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, Before I pray, I just want to mention that after church, we're going to uh, have a baptism. Uh, Our good friend Albie is going to be baptized. And so what I'd like you all to do once we're done with church, just go right to the back room there, uh, as we did just a few weeks ago uh, when we did a couple other baptisms. And when Albie's ready, we'll come out to the back patio. We'll do a baptism. We'll have cake back there and just have a great time uh, celebrating uh, baptism. And it's just a wonderful thing when when, uh, somebody makes a public profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to celebrate as we do at Grace Redeemer with cake. That's what we do here. So uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you uh, for this, uh, this passage of scripture. Lord, there is so much here, uh, the depths of which are just very difficult to cover in one sermon. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for what it tells us, uh, Lord, that, that the, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, and Lord, that you are sovereign over the timing of it and exactly what will happen And Lord, we leave it to your sovereignty uh, to work out the details. Lord, just help us to have faith in the the truth of Scripture, the power of Scripture, and in your word, Lord, and that you are coming again. And Lord, we eagerly look forward to that day uh, when we will see you face to face, Lord, and worship you uh, as we ought. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen.